Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I'm Ron Hogan, and my guest today is Thomas Dolby. He is many things over the course of his career. He's been a pop star, a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, and now he is a memoirist. The book is called The Speed of Sound. It's out by Flatiron Books. And 13-year-old me is absolutely thrilled to, to say hello to Thomas Dolby. Well, hello, and uh, nice to meet you, too. So... I loved this book. You know, it was great finding out a lot about you. As, as I said just now, I mean, I've been a big fan ever since the golden age of wireless. One of the things that was illuminating for me was finding out more about the, the crucible from which that album came. You know, I had not necessarily really realized or understood your formative years in, you know, the London punk scene, for example. Well, I, you know, I think there's a sort of, there's a punk undertone uh, through a lot of my work. And culturally, that, you know, had a big influence on me. Musically, not so much. Um, I tried to try out for a couple of punk bands, you know, and I was just, I was too sophisticated for them, really. Uh, but fortunately, at the end of the 70s, there was a sort of a counter movement going on in London, you know, based around electronic music. And this had really been inspired, I think, by a, a generation who were impressed with Kraut rock were impressed with art school experiments of Roxy Music and others. The collaboration between David Bowie and Brian Eno when they went to Berlin and, and uh, you know, started using all electronic instrumentation. Uh, but the thing was that synthesizers were very rare and expensive and unreliable. They weren't really for the guy in the street, you know. They were for university computer music departments and recording studios and rich rock stars. So those of us that were able to get our hands on any sort of electronic kit were very grateful and, and we tended to hang out in dank basements uh, with audiences of guys in anoraks with acne problems and strange projections on the walls behind us of sort of vivisection experiments and bombed out buildings in East Berlin. There's a point where you're talking about putting your first band together uh, after you've been with Lena Levitch and you decide you want to break out into your solo career. Put out an ad looking for fellow musicians and the influences that you cite, you know, like every band ad says like, you know, be into like these bands. And the bands you cite were like Cabaret Voltaire and Throbbing Gristle and Pere Ubu. And as you say, you don't necessarily hear any of that in the golden age of wireless or the flat earth or, or, or the subsequent albums. That's certainly true. I mean, I suppose something that characterized the, that electronic uh, movement was the tendency to celebrate the fact that machines have minds of their own, you know, that sort of stubborn. Every element of the building blocks of, of electronic music is completely ignorant of every other one. So there's no organic interaction between musicians uh, going on with electronic music. And that is what gave rise to its reputation as being somewhat cold and clinical and distant. And I was sort of fighting that, really. You know, my, my goals with electronic instruments were to give myself an almost orchestral palette of sounds to play with. I was always basically a keyboard player, but I was never the sort of Elton John type that could thump out a ballad, you know, on the piano and, and, and sing it and hold the spotlight like that. So, so I always tended to use layers of electronics to create a more orchestrated sort of sound. And, and I was looking for warmth and emotion rather than celebrating the coldness and the distance of electronic instruments. You know, you hear that on tracks like like one of our submarines or Cloudburst or you know, a number of tracks on Flat Earth and, and even on the, on the next two albums. I mean, one of our submarines in particular is you know the first one that I think of that has like a almost like a cinematic feel to it, a, a sort of an epic scope to it. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the, the subjects of my lyrics were often quite epic. Very often as a point of departure, I, I, I dreamed up these sort of parallel universes, um, almost a dystopian world of what if, you know, what if the Nazis had taken over Europe and succeeded in invading the British Isles? Um, what if there'd been no circuit boards and computer chips and, and we were entirely powered by clockwork mechanisms and, and steam power? What if the only energy available was solar and wind energy? What if the Earth got too hot so that the only place to survive was was at what was formerly the North Pole? Um, you know, there's a lot of sort of what-ifs in my songs, and, and I use those as a, as a backdrop. And very often in those scenarios, my role was as the dissident underground radio broadcaster, you know, uh, sort of against the suppressive regime. So often I would sort of cast myself in that in that light, and, and although the lyrics didn't spell that out, uh, often they evoked that kind of a, of a landscape. Reading this, it feels like trying to carve out a niche for yourself doing that uh, within the realm of pop music. And it's not like you didn't try to be pop. I mean, you certainly made very overt gestures in that direction. But trying to carve out that identity for yourself within the music industry, and particularly you talk about the British music industry of the 1980s. You describe it at a time when it was the second largest market in the world and five companies controlled 85% of the product. Being an idiosyncratic creative artist within that sphere and dealing with all the other challenges that you talk about in terms of the reception to electronic music and all that, it was a real struggle for you. And you know, as big as the hits were that we remember... There's also a very real sense that you were profoundly dissatisfied with the experience. Well, again, you know, because of my penchant, you know, for the music we were just talking about and the lyrics we were just talking about, I never really considered myself a mainstream artist. And I felt that if, as a concession to the mainstream, I would go out on a limb with, with the more poppy and accessible songs like She Blind Me With Science or Hyperactive. And that hopefully would get me enough play on the radio, enough attention in the mainstream, that people would f use that as a sort of, as a way in to discover the rest of my music. I always felt it was unlikely that the more quirky and idiosyncratic songs, like One of Our Submarines, or even the more sort of organic, uh, atmospheric ones, like Screen Kiss or I Love You Goodbye, I never really pictured those at the top of the charts. I thought the only way that that would ever, would ever get to that point would be to sort of gradually move from the more outgoing, accessible songs like Science and sort of gradually move into the more quirky and individual ones. And that was kind of the plan that, that we'd set out, you know, if in as much as there was a plan. That was the way that we wanted it to go. But it was thwarted, and I found that the record industry had a very short attention span. You know, they would shine the limelight on you for a couple of weeks, but if it didn't catch fire, then they would they would turn and shine it on somebody else. So, yeah, I was disappointed at the time in, in the lack of perseverance that, that the record labels showed, you know, in, in sticking to that master plan. But I think looking back, you know, and, and I realized this when I wrote the book, I was one of the lucky ones, really. I was lucky, A, to have a record deal at all, because that was put me in the top percentile, you know, even of talented people. And B, that the record company for a long time indulged me artistically and said, look, you can, you can call your own shots as far as what you record and when and designing your own record covers and making your own videos and stuff like that. And they didn't force me into a mold. You know, they allowed me to pursue that, but I think they felt, okay, if you're going to do that and you're going to do, you know, very sort of self-indulgent, organic, atmospheric stuff, don't expect us to put a lot of investment into it and try and get that stuff 
on the radio and in the charts because it ain't going to stick. So, so I think, you know, looking back, I, I think I, I had it pretty good and I didn't have a lot to complain about in terms of their treatment of me. You know, the dice didn't always fall correctly and I was sometimes sickened by the inner workings of the industry. But I wouldn't say I had a rough ride as far as many artists went. Did you ever contemplate, because you did produce a number of very successful Prefab Sprout albums in the 80s, and also did some other production work for artists like um, Joni Mitchell is an experience you talk about in the memoir. Did you ever think of going the route of somebody like Brian Eno, who became as much of a producer as a performing artist? You know, Brian Eno is not really a route. That's sort of like saying to a painter, you know, do you ever think of going the Leonardo da Vinci route? Uh, you know, design helicopters and drum machines and paint the Mona Lisa. You know, Eno is really a law unto himself. I mean, he's a, he's a extraordinary, both as a producer and a solo artist, to have, you know, produced mega hits by U2 and Coldplay, but also to have invented ambient music and all the installations he's done and so on is, is really extraordinary. I mean, I, I would be flattered to follow in those footsteps, but I don't think that's a route you can pick. I certainly, in the middle of the 80s, I contemplated moving more to a, of a backseat role with production, with film scoring, with working as a keyboard player or as a songwriter. But I suppose that kind of an artist, you know, when Eno puts out a solo record, you don't check to see where it got to in the Billboard charts or how many copies it sold or whether it was getting much radio play. You just sort of assume it's going to be something that is just there, it's out, it's available. It will be influential, but it's not really going to make a mark on the mainstream. And I suppose I was too chicken to do that. I didn't like the idea of a world in which my stuff would not even scratch the surface of the mainstream, because I do have the ability to do that and to make records like that. And so I wasn't ready to completely give up on that. And the path you did take after stepping away from the music industry after your fourth album, Astronauts and Heretics, you know, I think certainly like a lot of the Wired crowd, for example, have known that you've been in Silicon Valley for much of the 90s and, and 2000s. But I think for other people, that's going to be like a huge revelation that you became like a tech entrepreneur and very successful and ultimately, although it was not an easy ride. I think it would be a surprise, actually. I mean, there was... When I had my company, Beatnik, I did a lot of sort of outbound publicity to try and help my little startup, you know, get on its feet. And in a way, I cashed in a lot of my brownie chips from the from the pop star years, you know, in order to get that company off the ground. And I think looking back, I mean, I think it didn't make a lot of noise outside the tech world or outside of Silicon Valley. Inside the tech world, yeah, people definitely knew it. You know, when I was at the TED conference where I was music director for 12 years, all the VCs and journalists and technologists and all the people in the know there, you know, saw the second part of my career and, and knew what I was doing with, with technology. But I think certainly the fact that Shibani Mu's science and hyperactive really spiked at a time when the British invasion, MTV videos, dance cross crossover dance music were really were really spiking, you know, as a as a whole uh, movement. The fact that it made such a big splash there, really beyond any expectations I had commercially, meant that it sort of eclipsed uh, anything I was doing in the technology world. But at the same time, it was a very good way to get your foot in the door with a lot of people, it sounds like, that people were, were very happy to take a meeting with the She Blinded Me, the science guy. Well, I think that was a leg up that I got. You know, mm -hmm. There were hundreds of little startups in Silicon Valley at the time and a handful of gatekeepers who, you know, actually really controlled your destiny. It, it was so, such a competitive landscape, and the public weren't paying for anything. 
So the only hope that you had really was to get chummy with, with one of a handful of big companies, Netscape, Microsoft, Intel, Sun, maybe Yahoo, maybe AOL early on. You know, these were the people that, unless you had them as allies, you couldn't really expect to compete very long. And, you know, I think the business model for many of those startups was in the short-term VC, long-term IPO, you know, which is not really a business model. And we didn't have much of a clue either. Um, and the only deal, actually, that we ever did that had real teeth was when we licensed our technology to Nokia and they started embedding it in their cell phones. Before that deal happened, there was a point where you guys were pretty much on the brink of, of total failure. Yeah. Somebody pulled you aside and gave you a bit of advice that really jumped out as I was reading it. It was the sense of never confuse your business with your sense of self. Yeah, and that was from a restaurateur, incidentally, <laughs> not, not a uh, technologist at all. Yeah, no, I mean, I used to stop off. So I lived in Silicon Valley and I would stop off after work at this Italian restaurant and sit at the counter and have a glass of wine with the owner. And he was a serial entrepreneur also, but he, he gave me the tip and he said, you know, man, you should never confuse, you know, your brand with your sense of self because otherwise, sooner or later, it's going to go down the toilet. And if you don't watch it, your, your self-esteem will go with it, you know. And at that point, I turned and looked in the mirror and saw myself looking bedraggled and just sort of thought, okay, I'm way too deep into this and sort of set about, you know, taking steps back from it. And it also sounds like you've been able to apply that advice to sort of the return. I mean, you would never abandon music completely, but you've returned to recording and performing in the last decade or so, you know, in a way that it's basically, you know, there was a hiatus period mm -hmm. and now you're back. But it also seems like you're able to negotiate, you know, the Thomas Dolby brand as a musician, a little bit differently than you did in the 80s. Well, I have no dependencies now, you know. I mean, I'm not worried about paying the rent, and I'm, I'm not trying to keep a record company's attention, you know, in order to promote my stuff. It's all very much DIY, guerrilla stuff, right from writing and recording in my own studio through to coming up with my own ways to promote the music. And not having those dependencies and that accountability is very liberating. I don't pay much attention to the bottom line, you know, I don't really know whether it makes or loses money, but I do know that I, I, not needing to compromise at any point has been very good for my creativity because I can leave no stone unturned, really, and, and I find that when I sit down to write a song, you know, without any of those dependencies, I find that very freeing. And it would be very hard for me to go back to a situation where I had, you know, pay the ferryman uh, and, and sort of be paying attention to those kinds of dependencies. So why was now the right time for you to take stock and to write a memoir? Yeah, I mean, I think probably I was put in a reflective frame of mind having begun to teach. You know, as you may know, my father and his father and his father were all Cambridge professors. My mum taught algebra. There's a lot of academia in my family. And yet I left school at 16 to work in a fruit and veg shop. And I've come around to it partly because I feel that I have more energy to teach what I know to the next generation. And in some ways, I think that they're fortunate because I didn't have anybody to tell me how to do it. You know, because by definition, the things that I was drawn to were things that nobody really knew how to do. So there was no, there were no shortcuts for me. For a lot of young people today, you don't need to take shortcuts because the answers to your problem are just a few key presses away. You know, you download the user manual, you post a question on a forum, you find a YouTube video where somebody's done a little tutorial to show you how to 
deal with something. You don't hit roadblocks, you know, you don't, which means you don't take diversions and you don't come up with creative ideas for ways around the roadblocks. And so one of the things I do with my students is I, I keep them out of their comfort zone. You know, I'll lock them away in an edit suite for two hours with no internet connection and say, look, you, you in two hours, I want to see what you've done. You're going to bring it in and put it on the big screen and we're all going to critique it. But you're going to have to use these basic components as, you know, building blocks and come up with a solution. So I hope that some experience and maybe wisdom will sort of rub off on them, even though the technologies that they're going to be dealing with by the time they get out in the workforce are things that I haven't even contemplated. I can't help them with that. They've got stuff on their laptops that's more sophisticated by far than anything I ever had to, to work with. So, and I, I, you know, not, you can't keep up with that and be a full-time teacher as well. But what you can show them is, is a mindset. You can show them, by example, how you deal with, with creative problem solving and express yourself in, in those environments. In the writing of The Speed of Sound, you mentioned that you'd been keeping pretty extensive journals mm. over the decades, including a lot of text files that you were working with. And I had read somewhere that you actually started out sort of producing way more material than anyone would have expected. Oh, you mean in terms of the word count? In, in terms of the word count. Oh, sure. Well, yeah, I mean, so so the story of it was I was approached by a publisher, not this one, a different one, to do a sort of music biz tech guru book. And I, that didn't appeal to me, really. But what it did do is make me go back and dig up some of my journals and, and meeting notes and old file faxes and so on. And I, I found it very compelling to read you know, the, the notes that I'd taken sort of in the moment when I didn't really have a context or didn't see the big picture. And I thought I'd, if I was a reader, rather than read a 2016 retrospective on those years, I'd much rather read, you know, the morning after, you know, what my, what my feelings were, my excitement, my disappointment, you know, at that moment. Even though as a reader you find yourself saying, oh, no, don't go that way, you know, don't take the money, uh, you know, don't believe that guy or whatever. That was a more that was a more compelling experience than than the tech guru thing. So so I started doing it in a journal format and and filling in the blanks of what I didn't have. You know I made a timeline and I tried to carry on the, the journal entries that I didn't have in the same kind of style, the same voice. Based on that, I got a literary agent. They got me a record, uh, publishing contract, and I got through a couple of meetings here. I think before Flatiron sort of said. So in the next draft, can you maybe can we get beyond the journal format and do it in past tense, first person? And I, and I sort of, I'd been waiting for the other boot to drop. <laughs> sure enough, it did. And I was skeptical at first because I was worried that I would lose the immediacy. But actually, as it turned out, when I did the next draft, that I did it stream of consciousness and tried to stay in the moment and think myself back into into that mindset, and it worked pretty well. And and you know that the draft came back with some occasional notes saying maybe a, a paragraph of context here just to set us up so we know what's going on um, I, I felt okay about just adding that here and there and, and that ended up being the, uh, the format of the book one of the things that we learned from all those old journals for example is that you were one of the people who bought the apple newton back in the 90s that was no, you <laughs> it was me no it was, uh, it was good for warding off muggers but it, it, to me, it was also sort of in, indicative of the fact that, and you've, you've touched upon this a little bit in terms of the things that you were working with in the 80s, is that you've always been an inquisitive gearhead in mm. that sense of like mm. always looking for the next cool thing and, mm. and how you can play with it effectively. Mm. You know, I like making a new device or, or technology 
my own, you know, before it's really been defined, you know, what it's good for. I just like just plowing in, no user manual, you know, just start playing with it and see what comes of it. I think when things go mainstream and, and everybody's got one, then it's no longer exciting to me. Apart from the Newton, are there any other gadgets that you can remember that you were really excited about that have sort of vanished into the ether? Well, I mean, my Tandy TRS-80 with the acoustic cups uh, was, was a fun one. They were common in the music business at that time among road managers for sending back, you know, box office receipts to the to the record company and things like that. But it was sort of interesting in those days that a handful of artists were using them for sort of social reasons as well. I remember, you know, bumping into Barry Manilow online one night and uh, getting quite chummy with him, you know. But there was a very tiny community of artists using them in the middle of the 80s. So, yeah, there was that. You know, I had a Palm Pilot for a while. I had a, a Magic Cap, General Magic Magic Cap for a bit. I briefly owned a PC, which I hated, really because, as I mentioned in the book, because the venture capitalists didn't like to see apples on you know, on your desktop, because um, that told them that you were just a hippie dreamer. You know? <laughs> and as for, you know, music as a killer app, forget about it. So you're teaching now. Uh, what else do you have on your plate? That's more or less it. I mean, uh, people keep asking me if I'm going to do some more music. You know, I'm teaching film scoring, and I almost feel it's a bit of a cheat because it's years since I've done a full score. And when I did, I didn't really stop to analyze, you know, what was going on. So I would actually like to do some more film scoring and uh, maybe let my students in on the process. But, I mean, I think I'll get back to music. You know, I doubt it would be an album, per se. That's been a unit of musical currency in the past, but I'm not sure to what extent that, that applies anymore. That actually, again, you know, is quite a good thing because you don't... Artists don't tend to write convenient batches of 10 or 12 songs, you know, every six months. And I'm certainly not like that. So to take away the requirement to fill that period of time, I think, would be would be good. You know, it might be a single, might be an EP, might be songs for a film, something like that. Yeah, it's something that you know, artists like Weird Al have talked about in terms of, you know, by the time it takes him to put together like an entire album's worth mm -hmm. of material, some of the those things are, are months old, whereas with the digital market now, it's like he could come up with a parody of a hit like within a matter of hours and put yeah. it up online. Yeah, I would imagine in his case that's great. I mean, to a certain extent, I think when you put out an album or a book for that matter, it's like a snapshot of your life at this point in time. Mm -hmm. And you kind of want people to sit down and, and immerse themselves in it and come out of it knowing you know, where you're at as an artist at this, this particular point in time. I'm fascinated to see what people make of the memoir because you know maybe a quarter to a third of this is a subject that I would touch on in, in interviews in general. But a lot of it is stuff that I would never go near in the process of normally sort of talking to the press about my music and stuff. There's a lot of very personal stuff in there, you know, feelings, relationships, doubts, vulnerability that, you know, I felt that it wouldn't be a complete memoir unless I let myself go there. It certainly does go there in a lot of different directions. And there are a lot of really revelatory moments in this book. And I encourage everybody to go out and, and read it. It is called The Speed of Sound. It is a memoir by Thomas Dolby, and he has been talking about it on Life Stories. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope that you might go to iTunes and review it, uh, throw a couple of stars its way. That just makes it that much easier for the next person to find it on iTunes. And if you subscribe, then you'll always know when a new episode comes out. I'm Ron Hogan. Thanks for listening, and I'll join you again soon. Take care.